0: Juno, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it can vent Yeah. I'm on the search for peace, at least, and the better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans haven't got a ghetto. He told me around here head is to Hey
1: everybody, welcome to the show, Community Spread. I'm your host, Kevin Lundell. I hope you're loving that theme music as much as I am. And if you are, you need to go and like August the Great on Facebook, Instagram, Uh, check him out there. We really appreciate him having that music for us here. So this is a show about the spread of social justice in all communities. And on the pod today, we have a friend of mine by the name of Ben Mazeros. And Ben is a really thoughtful, well-spoken guy. And he has adopted a black son. And adoption is a topic near and dear to my heart but uh, a transracial adoption is something I don't have any experience with and really wanted to get Ben's perspective. And right up front, we want to acknowledge that we are uh, two white guys talking about race, but uh, Ben has a really interesting experience in trying to raise a black son and trying to give him um, a still... A, a black culture and a black experience, and the extra steps and things that he has to go through to do that. So uh, it's a really, really interesting topic and one that I think we can learn from. And it also led me to thinking about uh, our adoption and uh, the adoption of two totally white kids in Utah and how different that is from a transracial adoption, but how it's still so very complex and adoption is what I like to describe as a terrible miracle and that's just on my end from a a adoptive parent but the experience of being in a room a hospital room and having a mother hand you her child and say take care of my child is both humbling and daunting, and really indescribable, and it's really complex. And we often think back to this this experience and the complexities of it, and uh, have some wonder and some concern. We adopted both of our kids through LDS Family Services, and. We have, are since not part of the LDS community anymore, but uh, and having looked back on it, we oftentimes wonder how much um, shame may have played a role in our children's birth mom's decision to place their their children for adoption. You know, I, in, in the LDS culture, there's a lot of shame around sex, premarital sex, having a child out of wedlock. I think they, that adoption is sometimes pitched as redemption from that sin. And that's not right. Uh, adoption should not be a, a, an option or a choice that someone makes because they feel like it's the way that they overcome um, something that they have perceived as, or their community has perceived as a sin. Um, we've done our best in our lives not to further Add to that shame or that guilt uh, and we've done our best to uh, just include our birth moms and let them know how much we love them how much we care about them but that is complex it's a complex issue it's one that I don't fully grasp or don't fully understand don't fully know how to reckon with we have a wonderful life and wonderful children um, and Our lives would not be what they are today without those adoptions. So it's just, it's really complex. It's really hard to understand or hard to think about. But all of those complexities that we have uh, exist plus multiple things when you're talking about transracial adoption. And I can't really speak to those. Ben speaks to them some in the podcast, but maybe there's even another episode here where we can talk about those complexities and maybe even some of the problems, as we just shared with, uh, I just shared with some of the problems in adoption that happens um, through LDS Family Services, which uh, actually doesn't exist anymore. So, um, but that culture still exists. That culture of shame still exists. And um, so that can can continue to be addressed. So anyway, that's just something I've been thinking about and something that I think we can do better at as we flush out some of these ideas around uh, racial justice and uh, even justice when it comes to adoption. So without further ado, our conversation with Ben Mazeros. Hey, everybody. I got Ben Mazeros with me, a friend of mine that we've, uh, uh, you know, we haven't hung out a ton, but I know his his older sister, Amanda, very well. She used to be a, a coach for us over here at RC Fit and just a a great family, great uh, people. And he has a really uh, interesting experience that I think would be really lend itself to the conversations that we've been having of late. Uh, Ben, like myself, is an adoptive dad. Um, I don't know if you guys knew that about me, everybody that listens to this, but both of my kids are adopted. And Ben uh, also has a little boy by the name of Finn. Ben, how old's Finn? He's five and a half now.
2: Um, is he yeah. really? Yeah, it's wild. I can't believe it. He's getting so big. It's pretty incredible.
1: That's, that's so awesome. And so, and and unlike me, both of my kids are are white. Uh, ben actually was able to, he adopted uh, Finn and he's a little black, black boy. And he is, uh, so Ben is part of a biracial family now. And so we wanted to talk to Ben about his experience, what he felt like, uh, as As that adoption was taking place, uh, what his thoughts were about race then and how they 've evolved over time and and how this moment in time has has changed him and and his ideas on that so Ben, tell us about um first meeting Finn. what was that like for you?
2: Yeah, um man, it was sort of a a wild experience we Um, my wife has a a congenital heart defect where she was born basically without a mitral heart valve and she, um, had heart surgery when she was a baby and then had heart surgery again when she was nine and now has a, an artificial St. Jude mitral valve is what it's called. Um, it's like a little piece of NASA space, space metal in her heart. And she takes, um, a blood thinner called Coumadin, which is really common in, in older folks, um, And that helps prevent blood clots for people who have had prosthetics or other things put in. Um, But she's really young and takes that um, to stay alive and to prevent, you know, uh, blood clots and other complications from happening. One of the side effects of kumitin is that it causes midline birth defects in children. Um, And um, it's obviously very dangerous for a woman on blood thinner to give birth. Those are like all of this stuff is just stuff that doesn't mix really well so we always knew that we were going to adopt um and we're really excited about the idea i read a book i think it was called adopted for life a while ago and like one of the sentences was like you know a lot of men struggle with with not like just passing on their genes and having a child that looks like them and and what that means for their masculinity and for their you know um for the next generations or whatever. And, and the guy said something really poignant. Um, he said something to the effect of like, do you want to be a gene machine or do you wanna be a dad? Because if what you really want is to be a dad, then adoption is for you, you know? Um, and there's nothing wrong with having biological kids, don't get me wrong. But but that was something that really stuck with me. And so um, I we, we knew we were gonna adopt and we had been married for six years, five or six years um, before we really started the adoption process in earnest. And anybody who's adopted knows that it's a wild ride and it costs a lot of money. And raising that money is is terrifying. And, and um, we experienced all of those things. And we were um, eventually uh, matched with a mom who had had a little boy um about a month earlier and decided that she wanted to um give him up for adoption and help somebody else start their family and so that was december of of five and a half years ago she flew out to utah um and then eventually um got cold feet the day we were supposed to meet and and place and um she decided that she um wasn't able to go through it it and went home. And I remember like, it was like five in the morning, I was at work trying to like furiously print out paperwork and fax it off. um, So that we could get the adoption done. And um, the adoption agency called me and gave me the news. And by that point, you know, like, adoption is a roller coaster. Um, And there are lots of ups and downs. And that was certainly a down. And while she was on the call, with me giving us the bad news, um, her director um, pulled her over and said, "I just got a call from an agency in Detroit, and a mom has just given birth and would like to um, place with you. And she just decided that she wants to go through with adoption. So we're sort of scrambling, trying to get everything taken care of for her to take care of her. Are you all interested?" And we said yes. So four hours later, we were on so a wait, plane So wait, so that that.
1: That happened on the same day The same call yeah same the call. same call, yeah so what a roller coaster were, of emotions I mean I, yeah. you know uh, having gone through the adoption process ourselves and and um, having a, a failed placement story similar to yours like you know it's just uh, it can be heartbreaking you've you've built relationships uh, yeah. um, with birth moms and and uh, yes, yeah, so I can't imagine going through that and then boom turn there might be another adoption situation happening and trying to wrap your head around that.
2: Yeah. Like we, I, I I really felt in the moment like, okay, this is why would I ever open up my heart to this again? Like it just got crushed, you know, like I, the, the fear of getting on a plane and going and just going on a prayer really and hoping that it works out seems terrifying. Um, But we, we, My wife and I decided we any any chance we can get to start our family, we need to give it everything we've got. So we didn't have enough money um, to get on a plane. So a family member bought us plane tickets and we jumped on a plane. My wife left work. She was working at Starbucks at the time, Um, just uh, asked if she could leave, uh, left work and <clears throat> I didn't have enough money for the adoption yet. We didn't have enough money to to finalize everything and the adoption agency said we needed to have all of the money before we met the mom. So I went to a bank and begged for money. And um, a long story short is after being at a couple of banks, I um, eventually got to uh, well, I had to go to one bank to grab all of our money, and then take it to another bank at Wells Fargo, where they were going to give us the loan to get the rest of the money that we needed to send it off. And so I I was running down State Street with a bag full of cash, like 15 grand in cash, to Wells Fargo, and um, then like got to Wells Fargo, and there's a line out the door, and and our plane's supposed to leave in a half hour, and. I like begged people to let me to the front of the line, got to the front of the line, got somebody to help me with the loan, had all sorts of trouble getting the loan um, finalized and getting the money wired to the other uh, or to the agency. They ended up having to, um, there, there was like some error and she couldn't figure out what the error was. And I, I was like watching this lady try to put in the money and send it off and she kept getting an error when she was trying to initiate the wire transfer. And so eventually what they ended up doing was getting the um, the account number and information of the agency that also banked with Wells Fargo and they pulled the money out of my account and deposited it in their account as though somebody from their, their agency was making a deposit in their account and they're like this is super not the way we're supposed to do things and this is not there's like no paper trail that this was your transferred from your account now uh, but let me know if you have issues and we'll figure it out but go get on the plane so i was running to my car to try to get to the plane on time and i knew i wasn't going to make it like by that point in time it was like 15 minutes before takeoff, and i was still on state street and I remember praying like, God, if this is supposed to work out, just, just please let me make this plane. Because the the agency had said like this mom wants to meet you tonight and you need to get here tonight. <clears throat> and if she doesn't meet you tonight, we're not certain if she's going to um, go through with it. And so Cindy had made it to the airport, but I hadn't. And like I had finished saying that running to my car, And I got a notification that the plane had been delayed on my phone. So I jumped in the car and drove to the airport, parked illegally, left the car and said, screw it. I don't care. Um, (laughs) yeah, tow it. I don't care. Um, I parked the close, the closest I could get and just left, uh, ran through security. Some like great people at the Salt Lake airport um i explained to them what was happening while i was running and they they got me through security to the front of the line and like i booked it around the corner to the airplane with shoes in hand like as they were closing the door to the flight so we made it on the plane um we hadn't done anything at that point i had no idea where we were gonna stay we hadn't we didn't have a hotel we didn't have a, a a car didn't know where we were going didn't have address of the hospital had Nothing. We just knew we were supposed to get to Detroit, and that we'd figure it out from there. So, I I paid for internet on the flight, figured out a hotel, um, got some points from some fam- family members to book the hotel for us, bought the cheapest rental car I could find, which was like this tiny Ford piece of junk, um, and got to Detroit. And we were in a part of Detroit that was very. Um, like, it's, it's the parts of Detroit that they've, they've done, you know, documentaries on. Like, every third house actually has somebody in it. Most of, there are multiple homes that have just been burnt down because people have nothing better to do. Um, like, there's, um, I can't remember the name of it. I think the book's just called Detroit, um, and there's a, a journalist that won a bunch of awards for writing this book. But his experience of, of growing up in Detroit and being a journalist there was, like, very much what we experienced there and we got to the hospital and it was totally locked down and we couldn't figure out actually how to get in because they their security at this hospital is so tight that you can only go through one door at night and then you have to go through like metal detectors and be escorted into the um the wing where mothers are you know and but we got there eventually it was like 10 30 at night by the time we got there and we walked in and um there was Finn sitting in or, or laying in a um, cradle next to the mom, the birth mom. And the first words she said to us uh, were, I don't think I can go through with this. Um, and like in that moment, like she didn't look at us and she was just looking at Finn. And she said, I don't I don't know if I can go through with this and I'm really bonding with him. I. I thought, you know, like, this is, we came all this way for nothing, you know, and everything we were scared of is happening. But um, we um, had talked to my sister, Amanda, you know, right, and they've adopted, you know, she's adopted three children. And so, so I, I talked to her before we got there. And her advice was like, you know, do everything you can to just help that woman feel loved and, um, and do everything you can to make her life easier. And um, she's going to leave the hospital empty handed at the end of this. And that's terrible, and really difficult and do everything you can to make sure that she doesn't leave empty handed. So we spent two days just building a relationship with this woman who I'm still really you know great friends with we talk all the time um and through that experience she got to know us and became a lot more comfortable with the idea of adopting and you know we got to hold Finn and see him and obviously things worked out and in the end she like on day two after like she asked us many, many, many questions that she, it was obvious she was like very concerned about um the specifics of how we were gonna be parents and the type of world he was gonna grow up in and um, our thoughts about parenting and you know, whether he was gonna be going to church or what kind of school he'd go to and all that sort of stuff. um she she was really concerned about making sure that her son would go someplace um, where he would thrive. And on day two, she said, you know, you all are gonna be really great parents. And that was like this moment of things finally looking like we had hope, you know? Um, and long story short, like it, it turned out really well and um, she signed papers and we signed papers and we um, got home on Christmas Eve Five years ago with Finn, Um, and when we got home, we had left. We had had nothing because we we didn't have diapers. We didn't have, you know, we were planning on getting all of that stuff after, you know, meeting the birth the the other birth mom and and so we got home and our friends that were taking care of our house and our dogs while we were gone had put up all of our Christmas stuff and had put a bunch of baby stuff under the Christmas tree and had everything set up for us. So, um, we had like the best Christmas of all time. Um, uh, you know, having a Christmas present of, of Finn is is going to be
1: a hard one to top. Um, Tell me, um, you know, as you guys are going through the process of deciding to adopt, um, do I mean, one of those things you think you have, you have to talk about and think about is, yeah. is race. And, um, yep. what was your, what were your thoughts about that as you guys were going through that process? And, uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. So we, I mean, we have lots of friends who have adopted and and some of our friends have, have been, I mean, you know, like you can stipulate just about everything on the adoption, um, you know, uh, application, like, are you okay with, a boy or a girl, or a specific or a specific race,s or or not, or specific birth defects or not, or specific behaviors from the birth mom or the family history or not, or you know, drinking and alcohol um, or or drug abuse or not. And Cindy and I sort of decided really early on that we just wanted to be parents. That was the thing that we cared about, and that so many of the things on that list, we wouldn't be able to control if we were having a biological kid anyway. Like you can't control if your kid's gonna have birth defects. Like you can control some of the things that you do um, as as a person to try to take care of yourself and your child during your pregnancy, but, but you ultimately can't control so many things. And we felt like, um, you know, before I was, before I was, had a, a, before I was an adoptive father, I always considered myself as being not racist. Like that's, if you were to ask me like, what's your feelings on race? What do you think, how would you classify yourself? I would say before I was an adoptive parent, I would say, I'm not racist. And Cindy would have said the same thing. I mean, our our views have changed um, on that particular subject since then, which I'm sure we'll get into. But um, for us, we just said, you know, we're open to anything we would prefer a newborn because we'd like that experience at least once. But when it came to race, like we put no stipulations on race. And Yeah.
1: I, I think I, I mean, we, Jesse and I did the same thing. Um, and you know, we, we, yeah, we had no stipulations on race either. And we were open to the idea of, of adopting kids of a different race. Um, but I think when I look back on it, um, it was almost like this sort of, colorblind approach, oh, race doesn't matter to me. And I had yep. no idea, yep. you know, the the complicated nature of what that would look like um, if it turned out that way, you know? And so um, yep. in some ways it was, you know, it was kind of just out of ignorance. Yeah, well, yeah, of course, of course, of course we would be, you know, and not everybody is by the way, okay. Um, but I, I just yep. definitely hadn't thought through the, the complicated um, aspects of it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We've had friends that have been, who have felt really strongly about wanting to adopt a child that would look like them to avoid um, some of the challenges that come with being a biracial family. And that's totally fine. You know, like I don't fault anybody for saying like, this is what we're okay signing up for. And this is what we feel like we're being led to do. Like, that's all great. But I feel like our approach was very much like what you said, like, why should this matter? But it didn't really, it, it, it was not something where I thought about all of the implications that would come along with it. And, um, so I feel, yeah, I feel the same way.
1: So you get, you get baby Finn home on Christmas Eve and, and, uh, you know, you guys are growing and bonding and, um, you know, you mentioned earlier kind of just how your, you felt um, about, about race and racism at the time. Uh, yeah. Talk to me about how that shifted and how that changed and, 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 and leads into today's movement.
2: Yeah, um, <clears throat> so it's a long process. I think it started with um, the fact that, I think it is difficult, like biologically, we are, are hardwired like evolutionarily, we are hardwired to want to um, do everything we can to ensure our own survival and the survival of our offspring. And that presents all sort of problematic challenges because one of the ways that, that social creatures do this, that, that um, other species that we're related to do this and that humans have done this over time, is by deciding who's in and who's out of your group, right? Like we we otherize some people to increase the likelihood that our group will succeed. And part of being human is being able to recognize that and be able to choose differently from what your biology is telling you to do. Um, And I think one of the things that is sort of interesting about biracial or multiracial families Is that, um, you know, one of the ways that, especially recently, we have done that as a society is by race and putting people into specific buckets by race and putting systems of oppression in that, um, help us and our racial group succeed and others, um, have less opportunity. Um, and we see this all over the place, like, um. African Americans or black Americans have not been a part of, you know, the GI bill, for instance, in in any of the wars that we have been a part of, um, up until Vietnam, up until after Vietnam. And most people don't even know that, but we excluded them from those things on purpose. And it's largely due to people in power wanting to create systems that benefit us and our group and our ability to pass on our genes and, um, do that by walking on the shoulders of others. And one of the things I think changes, uh, even on a biological, subconscious level, for adoptive parents of, of multiracial families, you know, is, is that your offspring is suddenly in a totally different people group than you. Like, my, my desire to, even on a subconscious level, turn a blind eye to systems of oppression that benefit white people is all of a sudden met with like, these systems of oppression are affecting your child. And that is a total paradigm shift that helps you give up your selfishness as a a human being and, and start to dismantle things that have been hardwired into the way that you see the world through race and how that benefits you as a white man um, that starts to, to help you unravel those things. And so it was a combination of that and like a a heart change on like a subconscious biological level, I think, and deciding like, okay, I have a black son. I cannot have a scenario where he grows up and, regrets his father because he didn't do enough to understand the experience that he was going to have and to support him as a black American. And I need to understand where he's coming from and where all black Americans are coming from by extension. And so I started reading everything I could get my hands on and listening to podcasts um, about the black experience in America, you know, that listened to a number of like NPR series about um, the experience of black Americans who grew up in white households and, and the things that they struggled with. And and man, I, and, and doing a lot of like self-examination, which I had never done because I just assumed I wasn't racist, you know, my whole life, you know, I just assumed that it wasn't a problem for me and that that was something my parents are like, not my parents specifically, um, but like earlier generations had a a big problem with, or other Americans who are obviously racist have a problem with, but I don't. And through a lot of, of reading and trying to be empathetic and understanding and actually asking myself hard questions and looking at the ways in which I have racist, problematic, biased thoughts. I could not believe what I found once I started digging in my heart. And the the things that I had assumed were not problems for me. Um, and it was because I finally let myself say like, okay, maybe there's a chance that there's more work to do here than I thought. And maybe my journey with, with racism and with um, problematic biased thoughts is not done. Maybe human beings are more complicated than I thought, and maybe it's not about arriving somewhere, but about having a conversation about with yourself about racist or anti-racist thoughts or feelings or reactions, and maybe that's a, the case, and. Um, and then I started looking more and more into um, the reality that Black Americans have faced through through reading and talking to other, reading books written by other Black Americans, um, you know, like Stamped from the Beginning, um, The New Jim Crow, and all of the other books that like come out from that. Um, and talking to other Black Americans um, and Black friends and family members, you know, like, one of the things that i learned from a a podcast early on where uh, a a black gentleman was on npr talking about his experience growing up in washington with two white parents he said you know the number one piece of advice i can give you is don't let your black child be your first and only black friend like that can't be what happens Um, and so i said well that's hitting really hard because i live in a state that's less than one percent Black, you know, like, the opportunity here in Utah to have other black friends and have Finn have black mentorship is is pretty low, just simply because of the demographics. And I as a father need to step up to the plate and do something about this, you know, like, I can't be okay with where things are, I have to fight for a better world for my son, so and a better experience for him growing up for my son. Um, So that whole process led me to think like, where before I would say, you know, more of a colorblind approach, I'm not racist. I, you know, race doesn't matter to me. I see everybody as having value or worth. And and you know, before what I'd have said that, I would have said that. Now I say I don't think it's possible for anybody to say, I'm not racist, because I think what a lot of folks are arguing right now with the current environment that like there is no middle ground here. You're either actively against racism or you're supporting racial injustice because inaction is the same thing as um, doing nothing about systems of racial oppression are just as helpful for keeping those systems of racial oppression in place as if you were to be enacting those yourself. So I don't think it's possible for anybody especially any white American, to not have, to, to, to be in a place where your work is done here. Like it's just not possible. Like there's just, there's too much nuance. There's too much baggage in the Ameri- white American experience. We've got 450 years of slavery and racism that has, has built everything we know and hold dear. And we have to um, come to grips with that. We have to admit that there's an issue and work to do better before anything can change. And I think I'm not scared about the KKK. I'm not scared about the people who are actively promoting racist ideals. I'm scared about the millions of Americans who think there's nothing wrong or no work to do for them. And this is stuff that's gonna take people caring and doing hard work inside of themselves and starting at home in your own heart first and then in your neighborhood and with your families and then your neighborhood and then your communities. And if we don't have that, if people aren't willing to say, hmm, maybe I can't say I'm not racist. Maybe there's something more here. Maybe I need to, to do some more soul searching and, and listen to what Black Americans and Black neighbors are telling me and start the work in my heart you know, maybe there is still progress I can make, and maybe there's still a difference I can, I can help to make um, in the communities where I operate, you know, i think those are the biggest differences between like, before I was an adoptive father and now is that I, I did not do the work to really look inwardly before I was a father of a black child. And after that, Because I cared so much about Finn and his well being and being a good father for him and understanding his experience and making the world a better place like all any father or mother wants in life for their kids is for them to have uh, The ability to thrive and to have more and to have more happiness than they had growing up. We just want to give our kids something better a world that's better and um, That Feeling for me led me to understand that um, things in the world are much different than I originally had thought, and things in my own heart were much different than I originally thought. And I was no longer content to just hang my hat on not being racist. You know, that wasn't enough for my son.
1: Yeah, and I think you know that's a process that 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 I'm going through as well. um, And I think you you put that out really well, and and that. Um, it, it's no longer about this, we can no longer have this, the th- sort of color blind approach is racist because, you know, because our system in America has built in privilege uh, for, for white people. And so uh, if, if we're taking that approach, we're, we're benefiting off of that system. And so we have to take a much more active role. And I think you put that really well. I'm interested in, um, you said you're still, you're still in conversation with uh, your son's birth mom. Yeah. And I wanna know how did she feel um, d- d- uh, adopting to a white family and how does she, how does she see that today as as you guys, as she watches you guys grow? Yeah,
2: I think, um, you know, her name's Talisha. Um, Talisha is a is a really strong, wonderful woman um, who has grown up in the most challenging circumstances. Like I don't think people really know, especially people like you and me, we don't understand the reality that Black Americans live in every day and especially the ones um, in that are in a similar position to Talisha where there's, um, like she could not leave Detroit if she wanted to, there's no way, you know, like she is, she is stuck there for life and has, has had to live through and survive more than I could ever even dream to imagine. Um, and, she wanted to give Finn an opportunity to have a different life where she knew that she wasn't able to even give herself that, let alone her children. Um, her family was um, a lot more concerned at the beginning we met her her cousin and her sister, and they were not very excited about the idea um, and were really concerned about it. but, um by that point i had i had made a lot of i'd done a lot of work and made a lot of decisions in my heart about um and i just started to like i i i was like a baby in this world still um of coming to grips with all the things we just talked about um but i had realized enough of it to be able to tell them you know this is what i want to do for finn and this is what i care about and how i see my values playing out into the way we raise finn and the opportunities we give him and working hard to have him have access to a black community where he can have support from um, other black people and that those conversations um i think helped a lot um I think it's it's she hasn't expressed like being really worried about it, um, but it's still something that I think about all of the time, you know. And she has just been really supportive and loving, and tells us all the time that she loves us and and misses us. and And I have an Instagram account. Specifically for her, that's private, that only she has access to. And that's where we primarily communicate. So I'll post pictures there all the time so she can see what's going on in our life. And we can chat back and forth about how she's doing and how we're doing and how Finn's doing. And that has helped because she's been able to see um, the fruit of us caring about these subjects, you know, and caring about giving Finn an experience that isn't whitewashed, you know? Like, did you ever see um, Get Out? I didn't. Okay. I didn't see that one. So, as an adoptive parent, it will destroy you if you ever watch it. Um, there's there's a part in it, and it's a big theme in the in the movie that basically um, the message to me was: do not whitewash your black son. Do not put do not replace his identity with with whiteness. Um, And do everything you can to make sure that it's not like when he's in college and able to like, get connected with other black communities, like that should not be the first time where he's able to understand and explore his blackness and feel proud of it. And and think about what that means. Like, I need to go much deeper into giving him access to um, black communities so that he can understand what being black means and see, um, you know, see other black men being successful and have his confidence built up because of that, you know, like, that is is something I think about every single day. And in get out, they it's all about these white folks replacing black identities with white identities, but keeping their black bodies. and it gives me nightmares, you know, like because that's what I'm terrified of. I'm terrified that 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 I will not be able to help Finn connect with his his identity and his blackness in a way that helps him thrive as a human being as he grows you know
1: wow i think that's uh incredibly powerful and and, and incredibly you know maybe a good spot for us just to end and and for us to think about not just you know as a adoptive father, the way you are with, with Finn. Um, but as a society, um, and and that we've tried to do for a while as to whitewash America. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, I really appreciate your perspective on that. I'm thinking deeply about it and, and, and how I can help and, and, um, you know, particularly in a, like you said earlier, in a state where, uh, we are majority white by a long shot. And yeah. so how do we celebrate uh, that blackness that you were talking about? And um, how do we have that as part of our our culture? And so that my family can can learn about that as well. So yes. I really, really appreciate that perspective. I also really appreciate that, you know, uh, for those of you who have never been through an adoption process, just the, the process of, um, you know, a a birth mom, uh, placing her baby and, and is excruciating and it's complicated. It's complex. Um, so I want to give just the space for that too. Um, but I really appreciate you, Ben. I really appreciate this conversation. I think we learned a lot. And so thanks for coming on. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And that's the show for today. We, we appreciate you guys listening. want to thank Ben Mazeros for having that conversation with us. And don't forget to go uh, smash that subscribe button as well as rate us on iTunes. That helps us out. And, again, go like August the Great on Instagram and Facebook and because we yeah. really appreciate his music. See you guys.
0: It can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace at least. And a better spot to settle. Our brother said the Americans haven't got a ghetto. He told me brown here, that's a lot of faddle I troll in the block, I swear it's hard, not the meadow Or oh, that was just a peek at what the next man doing The situation report, it just messed and ruined And you can find a liquor store or pawn shop They are thick with the alcohol They be drinking nonstop, I swear I, I hear the cell gets a click for real Don't let me get in these facts, I dip The government's supplying the people crack for chip. Bring it, folks, every single cats asleep but that Jim Crow side effect trapped in a mind state. And it seemed like we at the peak of the crime rate. My brothers, yo, listen, our sisters go missing. And we down on the deli, some kill for the damn sake. I rather tell the truth while kicking this rhyme straight. Half the people illiterate, can't read or write. Try to enlighten them. They tell you we don't need your life. See how early. To the gig we don't get to graduate we got trade up to the league with no second plan hoping we got it made into a big we need more doctors and lawyers politicians and that if you feel this in your heart then i'm probably kicking a to touche and they talk to your power and shout here everybody's dead, broke and in power I swear, ah. leave the everyday life based on mad wishes the only jobs they have was provided by bad bitches they'd rather get some brain Lord, that law, that brought knowledge can't pay back, selling mate and we can't afford college around here the stake is always high so they banned, screaming fuck the law they'd rather leave and die for their gangs they got nothing to lose but they sick with hate mad at the world, we got a bone to peak with fate it's a white privilege the kids to the slave master we were left for dead design to hit the grave faster it's a setup and we ain't meant to survive look how far we don't came we made it to the length of surprise though the prophecy says we all been to a prize spread the word let it be known the heavens set us survive right here alive in the flesh that's real americans ever gotta get up <laughs> volume one Yeah.